0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 9 verses 23 through 28. It says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice for himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes a judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await for him. may be seated. And Thank you, brother, for sharing the passage with us. Welcome. Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm joyed. It's a joy for me to be here and my family with me to get to worship with you all and get to share with you from God's Word. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open to the ninth chapter, Letter of Hebrews. So We spend some time together in our Bibles. It's a joy that we have, a privilege that we have to do so. I appreciate the fact that your pastors have been going with you verse by verse through this letter to the Hebrews. Um, although there are many aspects of this letter, I'm sure as you've covered so far and all the context you've had leading up to this, it seem somewhat foreign to a non-Jewish audience as we try to sort through some of these things that the writer of Hebrews is trying to, to teach, um, trying to distinguish who the author of the letter is to identify and really the big picture of the letter it can be a challenge for us to grasp so I, I applaud and I appreciate the fact that your pastors uh, just want to care for you and, and love you enough to take you through a letter that is, is going to challenge you. It's going to press you and that's great. That's what we need. We're so thankful for this letter. Although this letter is a challenge, it was also a challenge for the early church, for the ancient church. As a matter of fact, it was a letter that was of much debate of whether or not it should even be included into the original canon of Scripture for much of its Jewish teachings. And as the new and early church was was trying to form into a Christ-centered focus, the letter of Hebrews was, was a challenge. Should we deal with this when we're talking about the canon, the early The ancient church had to wrestle with many of these questions. We're grateful to the work of the ancient church to to deal with many of these questions, theological ones, doctrinal ones, things of Scripture. Ultimately, the letter of Hebrews was included in the canon. We're thankful for that. And the reason primarily was this. The letter of Hebrews communicates in its entirety the simple message that Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is the greatest. That's the common theme that you see through the letter of Hebrews. This entire book really shows us that Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the new and better covenant. Jesus is the Messiah, the incarnate Son of God. Though we wade through many of the the Jewish and Old Testament, Old Covenant references, the overarching theme, the big picture is to point the audience to this truth. Jesus is greater, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham. The new and better covenant in Christ is greater and supersedes the old one. But here in chapter 9, as, uh, as you started uh, in previous weeks, maybe even a couple weeks ago in work and working way, we're going to conclude chapter 9 together. Uh, here the author has turned his attention to the comparisons of the ministries of the old and new priesthoods. So we're looking at the old priesthood, the new priesthood, and the regulations for ministry given through the old covenant that were for the earthly sanctuary that represented the transcendence of God, insomuch that as the people could enter the holy place of the tabernacle, enter into the presence of God. Only the high priest could do that, and only could do it once a year into this most holy place. We also see as a sacrificial ministry the old priesthood was unable unable to perfect the worshiper's conscience. It had a purpose and it had a role for why it was in- instituted, but it wasn't complete. The Old Testament old covenant way of sacrifice. The sacrifices offered in the old covenant were, were but a temporary covering for sin so that people wouldn't have to face God's wrath, to be certain Let's look at this and make sure we understand. Though we look at the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the sacrificial system in light of Christ, and we think, wow, that was a whole lot to do with nothing. But in its time, it, it, it provided a great uh, mercy and a great grace to God's people. God was, was certainly gracious to his people to have offered them a way for the blood of animals to temporarily cover their sin. While the old priesthood was incomplete, the sacrificial ministry of Christ is sufficient to cleanse the sinner. And that's really what the text is about today. So we've, as we've read, beginning in verse 23, let's go back and look together. Can I pray with us before we begin, though? Bow with me. Father, I thank you so much for the day that you give us, and I thank you so much for your word. God, help us. to Give us understanding. Give us clarity. Help us to be people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who, who chase after you that, that long to hear from You in Your Word and to be obedient to Your Word. Lord, provide us faith. Give us a desire of obedience, love to be faithful to the life that You've called us to in Christ, to to care for our neighbors, to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ, to bring much glory and honor and fame to Your name on earth. Lord, we thank you that we get to gather together, and I thank you for Rooted Church. I thank you for their leaders. I thank you for the ministry they have in this community. I thank you for the gospel witness that they have and their desire to see people live out their faith in a real way, in their workplaces, in their lives, and in their own neighborhoods, to, to the glory of Christ, that they were a, a missional church, God, that sees the responsibility of taking the gospel to their neighbors and to the nations as a, as a command. And thank you for the work they have done. Thank you for the work they're they're preparing to do. And kind of pray for wisdom, pray for guidance for them and for the future. Lord, give them uh, the desire to to continue to reach. Give them uh, opportunities to continue to minister. And God just bless them in incredible ways. Bless their leaders, their members. And God, let this be a fruitful work for many years to come. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for Christ. We give him all praise and all honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So verse 23 really kind of begins, continuation, where you had been last week. And it really should be read in light of verses verses 19 through 22. I'll read verse 23 and we'll go back just briefly to look. I don't want to preach last week's sermon. I think Alex told me that he preached last week. I'm sure he uh, did an amazing job. So I don't want to rehash everything he did. But... Man, Hebrews requires so much context. And you guys have been in this, I presume, probably probably months. And uh, I'm just kind of helicoptering in here for for a a, a few passages, and then I'm going to to come out. So I I want, just even for my sake alone, to kind of help me get my mind where we're going. Let's look back, and then we'll, we'll move forward from there. Verses 19 says this. He says, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent, all the vessels and in worship. indeed, under the law almost everything is purified purified with blood. and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So we read verse 23 in light of that, Verse 23, thus it was necessary, he says, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, this sprinkling of blood as we see. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So as we think of verse 23, in light of what has been previously said about using the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, and purification of earthly things as a as ways to worship and to purify these things to worship. In context of of how it was done, we look at how it is done now, but how much more did the better sacrifices, he says, accomplish purification? The better sacrifices. The, The word sacrifices here, he uses in a plural sense as to express the general notion of sacrifice itself Though it is strictly used here in reference to the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifices leading up to the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ, the greatest sacrifice of purification. The writer of Hebrews implies that Christ one sacrifice, by its matchless sufficiency, supersedes the Levitical many sacrifices. I think we just think about this: How many sacrifices had been performed prior to Christ coming, and and that one sacrifice of the Lamb of God supersedes the many sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood. Though one, it's manifold in its effects and applicability to many, as it stretches from an old covenant. Jewish audience to a New Covenant Jewish Gentile audience. It's amazing the effects and the impact of this one sacrifice and the work that Christ has done to bring purification to the the modes of worship, to the things of worship. It's really quite incredible when you would go back and study the Old Testament and the, the rules. And the regulations of worship, and and it was pretty strenuous. I mean, it was it was it was life was on the line. It it wasn't something that the people could take flippantly as to just well you know we'll we'll kind of go about it our own way or hey let's tweak this. It just didn't work that way. They they had uh, very strict perimeters that they must stay in, and even for the high priest, if he was to even attempt to perform one of these sacrifices not prepared, not purified, it was it was going to be the end of him and they would be looking for a new high priest, right? He he would he couldn't even live and, and perform the duties of his office if he wasn't in right standing before God and, and purified through all of these different rules and regulations. So Christ has done a great work on behalf of the new covenant believers, on behalf of us, to allow us to have such freedom in worship. Amen to that? I mean we have such great freedom and privilege and an opportunity in worship and, and the way that we do things, and that's primarily because of the sacrifice of Christ who has established a new and a better covenant. Verses 24 through 26, it says this, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is a loaded couple of verses here. I want to spend... Significant amount of time really looking and diving into these two verses here. These three verses, I guess, is what we're looking at, verses 24 to 26. It's amazing to consider, is Jesus, this ultimate high priest. Again, if we went back and and looked at kind of the highlights up to this point in Hebrews, we see the writer making these cases. Jesus, this great high priest, while ministering on earth, though brief, we, we, we look and see that Jesus spent three, three and a half years or so by the number of Passovers he he observed in ministry on earth. Relatively short time, but but as his ministry was conducted, conducted on earth, Jesus never once performed any priestly duty of offering a sacrifice in the temple. We don't see Jesus entering into the temple and offering a sacrifice. Jesus never stepped foot in the holy of holies. Matter of fact, Jesus would not have been permitted to do so. This great high priest would have not been permitted to step into the most holy place. Isn't that a wild thing to consider? Consider the fact that the high priest of God, the priest in the order of Melchizedek was denied access into the most holy place. However, Christ, as this passage indicates, has entered into heaven's most holy place. The very presence of God. Jesus was God. Jesus came from God. Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. So he had every heavenly right, but between the new covenants and the the old covenants, he, he had no earthly right to enter. So he enters into heaven's most holy place, and listen to this: the writer of Hebrews says he did so on our behalf. I love this. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands; another word would say human hands, but they're copies of true things. But into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, on our behalf. It's an amazing reality. This term, on our behalf, not only implies the atonement was substitutionary, Jesus enters on our behalf to provide a substitute, but that it was also sufficient to meet God's high demands for forgiveness of sin and for righteousness. Christ did exactly what was required to obtain forgiveness for sinner by entering in on our behalf, and in, in, in dying on our behalf, Jesus became a perfect substitute for our, for our lives. And Christ did exactly what was required by the law. The, the theological term for this is propitiation, simply meaning this. In Christ's death, the righteousness of God was completely satisfied. So we see a work of, of, of transference here as God is, is, is using his own son to take the place of sinful people. This is the transition of, a, of an old covenant, new covenant type of thinking. It's beautiful. Paul goes as far to states in, in, in Romans, you're probably familiar with this passage, about sin. He says the wages of sin, and this is, let me back up to just a second. This is really the, the barrier that exists between God and and man is, is a barrier of sin, right? We can agree that with the barrier that we have between is, is, is because we have sin in our lives that is preventing us right standing or, or voiding us of right standing in God's sight. So the sin has to be dealt with in some way. In the Old Testament, that sin was dealt with through the sacrifice of animals. In the New Testament, that sin is dealt with as a sacrifice of Christ. So as we're 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 seeing these things kind of work synonymously as we're talking about the rites and the purification and sacrifice. What it's ultimately leading to is Jesus' work to abolish or eradicate sin, to deal with sin. So sin is very much the topic of this, even in the sense of purification and other things of worship because we become, as New Covenant believers, we become the temple of God. We are the temple of God. So to purify a building is nice, but the sinner must be purified to have right worship with God. If the the temple is clean, I must be clean, and you must be clean. You you see that picture unfolding. So so Paul identifies the problem in Romans chapter 6. He says the wages of sin is death. The, The results, the effects of sin is death and we see that picture vivid in the old testament there was a lot of dying however us dying personally for our own sin could never provide satisfaction or suitable payment for our sin so it wouldn't be enough that we should just be struck down for our sin because that would never atone for it it would never provide uh, satisfaction for that sin god would have that would not have provided payment for our own sin. Thus, Jesus alone could accomplish this on behalf of the sinner, making his death on the cross sufficient to completely save all believers. Sufficiency. The main primary theme of these few verses, the sufficient and final sacrifice of Christ. Furthermore, as we Look at verses 25 and 26. They explain that Jesus' death is sufficient for all time. So it wasn't a, a temporary covering as the Old Testament sacrifices would have been. This means that when Jesus died on the cross, his death accomplished salvation for Old Covenant saints. So an interesting question that a lot of people have, perhaps you know the answer to this, perhaps you don't, but how are people in the Old Testament saved? A simple answer to that question is the same way you and I are saved, through Christ. We say, well, Christ hadn't come yet. The Old Testament and the Old Covenant saints were saved by faith in a coming Christ. They were saved by faith in a coming Christ, in a coming Messiah. You and I are saved by faith in a Christ who has come. And for future generations... They will be saved the same way there, matter of fact, the Act says there's no other way to be saved. there's no other way to be saved but through Christ. so when we when we think about the uh, the way that the, the work of Christ is sufficient when we talk about sufficiency, we're talking about not just sufficient from the time it happened forward but also from the time it happened backward. It makes sense the the sacrifice of Christ was completely sufficient to save all believers for all of time. It's that powerful. It's that sufficient. Jesus died. The work of the cross finds its safe way backwards to the faithful of the old covenant who believed in God's promise. For new covenant believers today, for future believers. So it wasn't necessary that Jesus die repeatedly, as a writer of Hebrews said. It's not necessary that he die repeatedly, or even once a year on a particular day, but once for all. As the old covenant sacrifices would be a temporary covering in. They would even have one provided for them on the Day of Atonement once per year that would cover all the sins of the Jewish people. Christ's sacrifice was once. It was for all. Jesus, it says here, is completely able to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ did not come to suffer repeatedly. He's not coming to die again. Appeared, he says there at the latter part of verse 26, he Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus came to abolish sin. Brother, sister, this is why it's so crucial for those of us who claim fellowship with Christ to deal with our sin seriously. Jesus' mission was destroy, to destroy sin. Not to allow us to continue to dabble. Jesus wanted and desired and, and actually accomplished a way to put away sin through the sacrifice of himself. So our response is a continual repentance in the pursuit of holiness. Pursuit of righteousness. That's the great need and the the church this hour is to pursue the holiness and the righteousness of God, to humble ourselves, submit to His word, to obey it, and to proclaim it, not to make concessions, not to, to bargain, not to barter. Full commitment is what Christ deserves. Jesus came to put away sin, and he put himself up for collateral. He, he put his own life on the line in order to do that, and he accomplished that. Now, we can certainly rest in that as well. Amen? We can rest in the work of Christ to know that we're not in this endless, tire. Tireless, tiresome, gruesome work to try to constantly prove ourselves to God, but we find mercy and grace that pardons us and gives us much freedom in Christ. It it gives us victory over sin. Our continual repentance shows our love for purity of Christ, the purity of his church. We ought to take sin seriously. But we must pursue righteousness fervently. It ought to be our aim. Our lives must bear the witness to the change that has happened within our hearts and with our minds. God has done a great work in believers through Christ. He's broken many of the strongholds that Satan has, has bound us with. We ought to glorify God in the, our conduct, in our speech, in our behavior a great testimony to the work of Christ. For you and I, just to say that we're a believer really means nothing. To say that we're a believer really means nothing. Just want to draw your mind back. If you went back to uh, Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews makes a pretty strong case against such claims in regard to apostasy that it's important that what we, what we say we believe, that we, that we model that. And, and, brother, sister, one of the, the, the most glorious ways we can do that is, is through confession and, and repentance. Because we will screw up, right? We will mess up. As believers who love God and love Christ and want to obey Him and honor Him, we will, will fall incredibly short rely heavily on grace and the mercy of God. So one of the ways the the believer best exercises his or her faith is through repentance. Acquiring of the Lord for forgiveness and others when necessary. I think sometimes when we talk about sin, we talk about the the Christian life, it's easy to drill down on how we ought to be and the things we ought not do and the things we should be doing and, and kind of skim over the fact that, that one of the most holy things and one of the most righteous things we can do is be re- repenters. It's not a, a one-time event that we just ask God to for forgiveness and we never, I don't know about it, husbands, if, if you only ask your wife for forgiveness one time, have you? And probably you do that every time there's a, an opportunity to. At least that's what I want to do with my wife and our relationship because I mess up a lot, and and when she messes up, see that's how that's what we're talking about here. But in the faith, sometimes we just look at it it's like, well, I, I repented of my sins, I placed faith in Christ, therefore forgiveness is just assumed. One of the ways that we can exercise our faith in a real way is to be repenters. To go often to repent. It's writer of first is John writes in first John that that God is eagerly to forgive to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness he's eagerly waiting to forgive we are wise as believers when we take our sins seriously and to be those who strive to draw near to the cross stay near to the work of Christ's in the cross and on the cross. Verses 27 and 28, he says, And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I do find it interesting that there are those who would readily acknowledge that God is the author of life, that God appoints a day for a, a person to be born. Most people agree with that. Most people would agree that God also is sovereign over death, that God has appointed a day from which a person will die. Yet there are many who struggle with the fact that God also sovereignly appoints rebirth. So, if God is, is sovereign over birth, He's sovereign over death, shouldn't He also be over, over rebirth, over regeneration? I would, I would argue yes. I love what Martin Luther wrote. He says, Is it not wonderful news to believe that salvation lies outside ourselves? Isn't it great to know that salvation, the work of rebirth, of regeneration, It's something that lies outside ourselves. It's a complete work of Christ. And the faith that we need in order to accomplish that, God provides that to us. God has done everything necessary for those who hear the gospel to repent and to believe, to repent, to place faith in Christ. It's a wonderful reality to know that the biggest and the most glorious event of my life, rebirth, salvation, to secure eternity, happened because God God made it happen. I hope you realize that as well. But as we look at this in text, when we're talking about for each person who's appointed a man, he says here, to die once, and just after that comes judgment, death marks the end of physical life and the beginning of judgment. The end of life on earth and the beginning of judgment. For the non-believer, this judgment is fair, it's right, and it's also eternal. It's fair, it's right, and it's eternal. For the believer, this judgment is completely overshadowed by mercy and grace and an imputed righteousness of Christ. See, the believer is just as guilty as the unbeliever. Believers are just as guilty as unbelievers, but the unbeliever stands to bear the wrath of their own sin, as Paul mentions in Romans. The unbeliever will stand and take complete responsibility and accountability and judgment for their own personal sin, and the believer, on the other hand, stands in Christ, justified and forgiven. We either get what our deeds deserve, or through repentance and faith we receive eternal life the glorious work of Christ on the cross. This last statement of this should instill this great hope in the heart of believers this morning. He says, Christ will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. This is a an interesting uh, thought for us to just to just deal with for a second. Christ will appear a second, but He's not He's not coming to deal with sin because, because friends, sin has already been dealt with. If If you and I are continuing to battle with our own sin, we're fighting an unnecessary battle. Sin, there's a way for sin to have been dealt with. Jesus came to abolish that. We have to believe that. It's part of our faith. But if we're continuing to wrestle with that, then... We're struggling to see the full work of Christ. So Christ will appear, he says, the second time, but this time it's not to come to deal with sin. Bring judgment, living in the dead. But also, he says, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The return of Christ marks complete fulfillment, in fact, of God's promises through Scripture. The picture we get is like, A bride, dressed and ready, waiting for her bridegroom to come and to receive her. And in a like manner, the church eagerly and joyfully awaits for Christ's return. Eagerly. It's it's not something that we are burdened by, and it's certainly not something we are dreadful of or fearful of. But rather, the picture in Scripture we see is An eager anticipation, expectation, a a joyful longing or yearning. Perhaps you've never thought of it that way. I would challenge you to to get into the the mind and understanding as the writer of Hebrews is trying to paint this vivid picture that, that what has happened and what's happening and what's going to happen, Christ is in complete control. Just trust Him. Just trust Him. He's going to take care of the things that you worry about. He's going to take care of the things that you're concerned about. The impossibility of of how all of things work together and all these loose ends are tied up. You You don't even have to worry yourself about it. Christ has it covered. He's done what it is necessary to purify believers. He's done what's necessary to to provide an all-sufficient sacrifice for believers to to really hold you as, as, as you said this morning. It's like we're not holding Christ. He's holding on to us. Like We can truly trust in Him and rely upon Him. Have confidence in Him. And knowing that this purification, justification, sanctification, this work that He began in us as believers, He is going to complete that. And it culminates into this glorious second coming as the writer of Hebrews is trying to express that. And us as believers, the church, we're eagerly waiting for that moment for our bridegroom to come and to receive us unto Himself where we can receive the full promises of glorification. It's a great promise for us to hold on to. The writer of Revelation, John, at the end of Revelation, he says a few words that I think are are meaningful to kind of grasp this. When he says this, he says, the Spirit and the bride, they say come. The Spirit the Spirit longs for the return. The, the world is groaning. The church is stirring. The Spirit and the bride, they say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have this great anticipation. God, I thank you that as we wait and your faithful To each of your promises, you're faithful to each of your people. God, that you are are walking beside us, you're leading. Your spirit is contending with us. Your spirit is is empowering us to to live out our lives in a way that reflects your goodness, a way that reflects your love. You have equipped us with the words of Christ to proclaim the good news to the captives, to the lost, and to the dying world. And may we be encouraged by the writer of Hebrews that the work of your son Christ has accomplished everything necessary for us to be in right standing with you. Everything, the work is done. Christ is the all-sufficient, final sacrifice. We're so thankful for him. Lord, be with us as we continue to worship and commune with one another. Lord, be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So I believe.